0: My biggest mistake ever was sticking with my initial career too long.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. So, Join me. Go to MyWorstInvestmentEver.com and sign up for our free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotz from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guests, Rex Salisbury. Rex, are you ready to join the mission?
0: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: All right, let me introduce you to the audience. Rex is the founder and general partner at Cambrian Ventures, a pre-seed and seed-focused fintech fund. He previously was a partner at Anderson Horowitz, where he helped launch the fintech vertical. He has over a decade of experience working in finance and fintech primarily as a software engineer before becoming a venture capitalist. So Rex, just take a minute and tell us about the unique value you are bringing to this wonderful world.
0: My goal is to provide access to networks of networks and to connect people who are building interesting companies in financial services with technology to other folks doing similar kinds of work. So I spend a lot of time connecting people all across the ecosystem.
1: I think it's an interesting point because It's just so hard when you're running your own business. You just don't oftentimes even have the time to look up. So it's like when someone comes along the, hey, and I know from my own experience, when someone comes along and they go, you should be talking to so-and-so, let me introduce you. It's like, oh, thank God. connecting is really, you know, got to be a great feeling, particularly when you can gain from it too, if you're investing or or not, but.
0: Yeah. And I kind of came across my career in venture capital accidentally. And venture capital is an industry where facilitating connectivity is a key part of how you provide value to the companies you support, but then also how you get to understand what's going on in the ecosystem and what's interesting. And so I accidentally ended up in venture capital because I was basically building community for people In fintech, fintech being a portmanteau, meaning financial technology. So I'm based here in the Bay Area, in basically, you know, just north of Silicon Valley, investing in technology companies that are trying to disrupt financial services. And back in the day, I was a software engineer working under one of the co-founders of SoFi to work on a new company in and around consumer mortgages. And I was, you know, doing back-end software engineering, creating what I thought was pretty interesting. And I was like, hey, I want to talk to other people who are building interesting technology in FinTech. And so I started doing small monthly events in downtown San Francisco for other people like me who are software engineers, founders, product managers from companies like Stripe, Plaid, Lend, Credit Karma to talk about something they built and launched recently. And that community just grew over time to the point where now I have 20,000 plus newsletter subscribers. I have a Slack community I run. I have 1,700 plus FinTech founders I I have a podcast as well, the Cambrian FinTech Podcast with Rex Salisbury. And I just do a bunch of stuff around connecting people because what I do now as a job is I invest in very early stage founders, usually two people who have just incorporated, who have an idea and maybe a few potential customers lined up, but they probably haven't even built a product yet. And the way I get to know those people and get to build the confidence that what they're doing is interesting is I get to understand the ecosystem they're in and I get to understand the pain points they're solving. I get to build the confidence that they have the skill set to build that product and then also sell that product. And then in supporting them, I do the same thing that I do in finding them, which is provide connectivity to the community and the ecosystem that I've built. So a lot of what I do is you know just connecting people all day. And it's it's a fun way because at the end of the day, I think the most interesting things in the world are arguably everything in the world is built by people. Mm. And the most interesting things in the world that people are building... You can't like go and Google them because no one's created a, a Wikipedia page yet, right? There are these ideas that live inside of people's heads that haven't actually been expressed or, you know, gone out and become like super public, but they're the people who are building what's next. And in order to get a sense of what that might look like, you have to be in the business of having lots of conversations with people. And that's yeah. the the business that I'm in. And it's a really fun place to be if if you're of my temperament
1: and what's uh like what's a either a person or a company or an idea that you've either invested in or seen that you just think is, you know, something that people haven't seen of where people are working behind the scenes on solving any particular problem.
0: Yeah, I that's a great question. So first of all, I'm doing pre-seed and seed and I'm doing B2B fintech. So these are very small companies that are very new, and B2B means they don't sell to consumers, they sell to other businesses generally. And this is financial services. So anyone who knows financial services knows that it's opaque (laughs) and hard to understand from the outside. So I could describe to you what a lot of these companies do, and you would probably find it profoundly uninteresting. Well, maybe not you. You would probably find it interesting. But the general audience very well might find it profoundly uninteresting. So I'll instead describe the types of companies. I'll probably give you one or two examples of portfolio companies as well. So companies you may be familiar with are Credit Karma. They're an app or a website that allows you to check your monthly credit score. They sold to Intuit in 2019, I think, for $8 billion. It was one of the first big outcomes in the fintech ecosystem. My goal is to find two people who are building something like the next Credit Karma. Or maybe two people, and this would actually be a better fit for me because Credit Karma is more of a consumer company and I will invest in consumer companies, but 10, like I said earlier, to do more B2B. Maybe two people who were inside of Credit Karma helped build some key part of their infrastructure or ecosystem, develop some novel insight into how some broken piece of infrastructure and financial services was a huge problem For credit karma and then they go out and they build a standalone company that solves that problem and maybe sells to credit karma and sells to a whole bunch of other people so like Mm -hmm. just as an illustrative examples of types of things that might be broken that someone in credit karma might find is like oh it's really hard to underwrite consumers or it's really hard to onboard consumers and make sure they aren't fraudulent credit karma actually has a checking account now Credit Karma has historically recommended just credit cards, but they're trying to move into auto loans, into home loans. It's been really hard for them to move into auto loans and home loans. There are people who own those verticals. They've discovered why those categories are hard and are probably thinking about interesting ways in which you could make it easier for people to get access to better mortgages or better auto loans. And so that's what I like to find is both, you know, had the next great companies within financial services... That are building interesting products for consumers. Maybe one example. What's hard is a lot of my companies are also in stealth, so I have to think through which ones are are public right now and have also have interesting stories to tell. One of them that is public right now and I think the audience can understand. Some of you are are probably married. If you're married, you you may have bought an engagement ring. If you bought an engagement ring, you may have gotten ring insurance. When you went to buy that ring, you probably went to a store. But actually, more and more people these days buy jewelry online that might be an engagement ring it might might not be if you want to get insurance you know you can click a button you get it shipped to you maybe there's shipping insurance or whatever but if you want to get insurance you now have to like get an appraisal you have to fill out a bunch of paperwork you have to like email someone else and they're going to ask you some questions and it's going to maybe you don't even bother doing it cuz you like don't know who to go to well, that's crazy like the person who sold it to you knows everything there is to know about that ring And that's really the main thing that's being insured. So there should just be a button that when you buy an engagement ring online, you can get insurance with it. And so I'm an investor in a company called Oyster that is doing embedded insurance for high growth e-commerce categories. They do online jewelers. They also do e-bikes as well. E-bikes is actually their largest category. Similar story. You buy an e-bike, it might be a $4,000 purchase online. It's a very important purchase. You're worried about it getting theft. You're worried about the e-bike getting stolen. You're worried about maybe getting injured when you're riding the e-bike or injuring someone else. Even if your homeowner's insurance covers your e-bike, which most homeowner insurance policies do not because they don't cover things with a motor, they're probably not going to cover the risk of injury to yourself or others. And so you want to have insurance for that. And then theft is the other, other big one. And so Oyster, same thing. You can click a button as part of that purchase, get access to insurance for a very important product in a seamless way. And so, oyster is a very interesting company building embedded personal insurance products across a whole bunch of different verticals. They're also omnichannel. so most of their policies are attached at the point of sale on an online, you know, checkout session, but they also have solutions. if you're an omni-channel merchant that has a website and an in-store presence, they can support that as well. So that's an example that's of someone who's trying to deliver, you know a frictionless, interesting consumer experience for something that's that's pretty friction heavy right now.
1: Simple. Just a little button next to the purchase button <laughs> on somebody's website. But there's so and, much.
0: B- and behind that, there's a lot of infrastructure, right? You've got to exactly. get, get a carrier. You've got to get an MGA. you gotta, you got to do claims. you got to do under, like, there's a whole lot of stuff. So it takes a ton of work to get that simple little button. But yeah, that's the, the idea.
1: I just want to ask one question that's it's such a challenge for the companies that I and friends that I know that have companies. Here in Asia, you know, take Thailand as an example, it doesn't, first of all, English language is not, you know, a leading language, unlike maybe some other countries in Asia. And the second thing is that there's just not a real base of coders. So when a Thai company wants to set up, you know, they try obviously with the best Thai coders that they can get, but it's a pretty small pool. And then they have to go outside and try to either hire an agency or maybe they outsource to India or they go to Philippines and get some coders or Ukraine or some other places. And then they try to build it. I just see failure after failure. And I'm just curious from your experience, how does it happen in the U.S.? Is it a small group of coders get together and start that company, you know, or is it that they hire 50 coders and. Put them to work and three of them end up producing the value, or are they outsourcing to India like we're trying to do here as an example? I'm just curious, yeah, observations on that.
0: So I think ecosystems get really, really good at doing certain kinds of work, right? Like you had Detroit got really, really good at building cars. And if you wanted to start, not that this would have been a good idea, like a new car company, where should you go? You should go to Detroit because you're going to hire someone to run your assembly line to design your vehicle to do order all of the parts from all of your suppliers and they're going to know all these things about how to do it that are maybe not obvious to an outsider i think people look sometimes at software and they're like oh it's not that hard like i see a website i know what a website is i'm going to like draw on a piece of paper what i want i'm going to hand that piece of paper to a software engineer and they're just going to make it and then we're done and and that's not how software development works <laughs> like shocker its software is a living breathing product most of the apps you interact with every day they aren't static people are pushing changes into production multiple times per day for all these websites and and companies so there's actually a lot going on under the hood so that is to say if you want to develop software for something you have to be in a good ecosystem or have been in a good ecosystem with the right connectivity and the right people it can't be something where you just draw a schematic on a piece of paper and then throw it over the wall. And so in the Bay Area for a long time, this was one of the very few places you could go in the world or in the US where you could find this really great, rich talent density where not only the software engineers you know knew how to do lots of different things, but you have all these other folks. You have product managers who know how to translate business requirements into technical you know, product requirements, essentially, that then the software engineers can go out and build against. And the product managers understand how to work with engineers. And then you also have founders who themselves have been technical. So they understand, like, when they draw up and have an idea for something, what can and can't be done. But if you don't have all those components, it can be very hard to just try to do it somewhere else. That said, software development practices from the Bay Area have spread globally now. And I think you can find great engineering talent anywhere. But as I said before, engineering talent alone isn't sufficient. You have to have the understanding of how you use and leverage and communicate with even great software engineers because there's more than just the draw something on a piece of paper, trying to hand it to someone. And so that's the TLDR there. That's, is a, that's a
1: great one. And I mean, yeah. Thailand is interesting because what Thailand did is that Thailand created a hub, but not for that. It created a hub for automobile production and the Japanese built an infrastructure that's so powerful that it's very difficult for someone for them just to shut down and go to another country. That infrastructure is so powerful of roads, of storage areas, of connectivity between the manufacturing firms. But it sounds like if Thailand wanted to improve on how how it could, you know, build out more from a development sense, really have to build out kind of a core place. Actually, what I what I kind of hear from it is like a physical place where people go and a part of the city or whatever, where it starts to, and it's, it's a long process because you probably need to bring in a lot of outside expertise and then slowly and steadily build on that so that ties know that go there when you are a founder and you need, need to figure out how to build it. So that's great, great info. We could talk a lot about that because I have a lot of questions. (laughs) and Yeah.
0: It's not just the software piece too. Like if you go back to the kind of origin of silicon valley it's you have people who know how to make chips out of silicon and so it's that expertise and that those networks of know-how but then it's also in the culture that you had like the one of the founding stories of silicon valley is the trader state who leave fair chi- fair child i'm going to screw it yeah, up semiconductor job. And Fairchild Semiconductor, and they go off and they start their own competitive companies. And then like venture capital gets started, so a funding mechanism for these people who are deeply technically skilled. So it's it's a whole bunch. It's like a cultural element. It's a financial element. It's like a technical know-how element. And you have to get all of those things to build a really rich tech ecosystem. And venture capital is global. I have a lot of friends who invest in fintech companies globally. But when you go abroad, sometimes you forget just how much you or when you go abroad, you often then remember how much you take for granted about all of these default assumptions you're going to have in a well-developed market for building software companies like you have in the Bay Area.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story.
0: (laughs) My worst investment ever has to do with, how I allocated a component of 80,000 hours. So if you're not familiar with this framing, 80,000 hours is about how many years you have in your career to work. So the math there is essentially 40 hours a week. You've got 50 weeks a year. Maybe you take vacation, maybe you don't. And then you do over that some period of time. So my biggest mistake ever was sticking with my initial career too long. So, I went to a small liberal arts college on the East Coast. It's called Davidson. I had a great experience, have a lot of good lifelong friends. I studied economics. I also got a major in history. I think colleges are bad at preparing people how to think about their careers, and therefore, a lot of people just end up kind of doing default choices that are in the ecosystem. And that's what I did. So, I ended up working in investment banking specifically for b of a Merrill Lynch, and i did I did explore some other stuff. I actually did a, Internship in South Africa and studied informal money lending. I I actually worked shore support in Alaska doing commercial salmon fishing, but it was like pretty clear to me that was a fun summer, but it was not going to be a, a career. <laughs> Although I ran into people out there who were like, yeah, I came out here in the 80s and still here. So <laughs> and you get you actually some of them like started seafood processing companies. But anyway, so I I was like, I got to my senior, I was like, I don't know what I want to do, but Banks hire a lot of people. They hire a lot. Wall Street at one point was hiring over fifty percent of the alums of Ivy Leagues, and so I ended up going and working in a bank. And I was thinking, you know, big bank, big businesses. Like, surely there's interesting work to be done. Surely I'll like find something I really like. And so I was there for over four and a half years. I did kind of three distinct roles, and after I did the first one, I was like, I don't. That's not very interesting. Maybe maybe there's something else. That's like the second one. I was like, that's awesome. (laughs) I did the third one. I was like, okay, this is also not interesting. And really, I should have realized that a lot sooner. And I think the way I could have realized that a lot sooner is just by saying, like looking at the people around me and being like, in 10 years, do I aspire to be like these individuals? I want to say like, a lot of these were nice people. Many of them are still friends. But the answer was no. Like, From a career perspective, I did not want to be in their seat, like, Wall Street investment banking doesn't have the best culture. People aren't necessarily the most just creative and thoughtful and experimentative. It's a very kind of commercial, zero sum mindset. So, like, it just was not a good ecosystem to be in. And that was apparent to me. And I've been thinking about leaving ever since my, you know, call it second month on the job. (laughs) And I didn't, I just kept dragging it out. And so I wasted those first four years of my life doing something that I knew I I shouldn't have been doing. And I read this or didn't read, but came across this study that I really liked that I think is useful framing for thinking about when to quit. So I think quitting can be a very important skill to exercise. And Stephen Levitt of Freakonomics fame, who's also the author, or sorry, who's also a professor at the University of Chicago, did an experiment on a coin flip where he had a bunch of people agree who were really like on the fence about whether to quit a job, quit a marriage, or make some other relatively serious life change, just to pre-commit, like I'm gonna flip a coin and it depending on which side comes up, I'm gonna do that thing. And so it's kind of a natural experiment. Like let's take the people who are quitting the jobs, because so that's most relevant to this story, where you get, you know, a hundred people who are thinking about quitting their job, they all flip a coin and then, you know, probably not a hundred percent of them actually did what the coin said, <laughs> but maybe 90 of them or 85 of them did. And then they looked at the kind of self-rated happiness with their decision afterwards, and they found that people who were thinking about quitting their job and did quit their job were much happier than people who are thinking about quitting their job and didn't. This was also true for people who are thinking about leaving a long-term relationship as well. This was not true for a lot of other categories. I've since forgotten what those categories are. Mm -hmm. But the takeaway was, if you're thinking about quitting something like a job, the answer is probably... Now, macroeconomic circumstances aside, like the realities of life aside, there's a very good chance that you should quit it sooner rather than later because there's some reasonably experimental evidence suggesting that that is a good way to lead to kind of better self-assessed life outcomes. So I so think I, that's a really interesting story. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean that that's a great study and it's kind of like forcing the issue. If you're on the fence, maybe it's better just to, you know, do it. How would you describe the lessons that you learned from this experience?
0: Yes, I think the lesson that I learned is I was thinking about quitting my job about three different times seriously where I was at the bank but pursuing other opportunities. I was looking at doing a, a small tech startup in the current geography that I was in. I was looking into starting an investment fund that was going to invest in single family rental properties. This was after 08. So you could buy properties pretty cheaply. You could rent them out pretty well. They had better cap rates than multifamily REITs, and there's better appreciation potential. So I like almost did that. I almost did something else. And those things, because I was working full-time, I actually didn't invest enough time. And I hadn't like burn the ships to go all in on it. And so it just, it drug out longer. And so what I thought was, I always thought I was like two or three months from being done. And then like three years later, what I realized is like, no, like I've got to just quit my job. And that's what I did. So I eventually what I did, and I was at the bank, I was taking online coding courses. In particular, I took Sebastian Thrun and Peter Norweg's course, Introduction to Artificial Intelligence. Which was, uh, you do pseudo coding, actually not real coding, but you learn some of the foundational, and you can do a lot of algorithmic thinking, which is core to computer science without actually writing code. You do algorithmic thinking instead. And so I took that course, I was like, this is awesome. And that's how I then started getting into teaching myself, become a software engineer. By the way, that course at Stanford was the first massive open online course, and then became For some of the listeners, you may remember when massive open online courses or MOOCs were a huge craze. That craze, well, if you probably don't know what that term is, that's okay, because that craze has since kind of died, although it lives on in other other ways, became Udacity, which was one of the big MOOC providers. There still are other ones. There's Coursera, Udacity, and then what's the other? edX is the one that the colleges and universities kind of co-own. So I did that course and then ended up teaching myself to code. And eventually what I did, which I, again, should have done much, much earlier, is I quit my job, I drove to San Francisco, and then I worked my ass off to find a job. And eventually I did. And that's my other bit of advice. So like, first bit of advice, one, like if you're thinking about quitting something, think even more seriously about quitting something. And two, networks really, really matter. We talked about how that matters from an investment perspective. And how that's like a core part of my job. But it's incredibly important to have access to good networks when you are early in your career. When you're later in your career, you've probably already built networks. And so maybe you can, you know, everyone's talking about how you can work remotely now. Late on in your career, when you've built your network, okay, maybe you can go and work remotely somewhere, right? Because you're going to know how to build and maintain that network with existing relationships. When you're fresh out of college, you do not have a network. You kind of do. You have your your classmates, but you don't have a professional network. And the best way to build that is in person, in network-rich areas. And if you want to work in tech, there's basically one answer to that question, and that's the Bay Area. There is maybe an okay second answer, in my opinion, which is New York, especially if you're interested in fintech, because fintech, as it suggests, is both finance and technology, and New York is a very big banking center. So like, I think that's fine too. So if you're a new college grad and you are interested in technology, move to the Bay Area, maybe New York, and that will matter so much more than you think it does. Do not go and work. I was working out of Charlotte too, so that was part of the problem. Do not go and work somewhere else. Now, unfortunately, not everyone can have that flexibility, right? Like the US has immigration laws. So, a lot of people can't actually move here, which is frustrating uh, to me and to a lot of other folks. And it is good that you can still, there are things you can try and do to build those networks. But if you have that unfair advantage to be young, relatively unattached, and the ability to relocate geographically, you should do that. And that will matter so incredibly much. Everything I do now as a venture capitalist, all the investing that I do, all of the folks I know, all the people I've had the pleasure of working with, I could never have done if I had lived somewhere else. And so, so much of my success is attributable not to some like unique genius or skill set on my end, but just being in the right place with the right people. And if you are young, you have this unfair advantage to relocate to network rich areas. More so than a lot of other people do, at least. It can still still be hard for folks. So that's yeah, that's my thing. It's basically bad. move to the Bay Area, maybe New York, and quit your job sooner if you're thinking about it. That's and, great. And don't, don't make it the worst investment I ever made. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Four years doing a job I didn't like.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, it reminds me of when I started my career. I studied finance at Cal State Long Beach, and then I got a job offer from Pepsi, which was huge for me. And I went to work at their manufacturing plant in Los Angeles, in Torrance, California. You know, it was interesting. And I learned a ton, but I just knew in my heart, like, I'm not going to do this forever. So I did my MBA like you were studying. I was studying. And then I started traveling and I went to Thailand. And that's when I got interested. So I went out and tried to find a job. And I took a job with an 80% pay cut. And I had, really, I had no money. I didn't have much money. I'd paid off. I still had $20,000 in student loan debt. And I had about $2,000 of cash in my pocket. I sold everything I owned. I left America and I came to Thailand 30 years ago and I never left. And it was, the best, it was the best decision I think I've ever made in my life. So for the listeners out there, you know, use this as inspiration, not necessarily to say I'm quitting tomorrow, but to say, I think what Rex, what you've said is, if you're feeling like you want to quit, take that seriously, sit down, write about it talk to someone about it, start to take some action. But here-
0: all You don't even have to move to a city, go visit a city, rent an Airbnb for a month, like try and talk to a ton of people, right? Which that's one thing that I did as I was affecting that transition. So there are ways you can take steps towards that.
1: The point also, don't don't miss the point that Rex busted his butt trying to learn to code while he was you know in that process. I- did my MBA while I was at Pepsi. So, you know, invest in in the skill that you think you want to move into as much as you can, that that helps you make that transition. So that's another part you don't want to miss in that story. Let me ask you, yeah. what's, a, what's a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners?
0: Yeah, I think resource, I mean, the, the biggest resource is the resources afforded by the networks of particular geographies. And so try, mm-hmm. try and access those to the extent you can. But otherwise. You know, if you're interested in a certain area, the biggest thing is to go out and find other people who you think are really good at writing and talking about that area. I think the tech ecosystem is really good about this in terms of people just writing and ideating and building in public. And if there are like certain trends or topic you find yourself gravitating towards, just do that and go out and try and identify who you think the 10 most interesting writers are on that subject. And subscribe to that blog, follow them on Twitter, connect with them on LinkedIn, interact with their tweets, like maybe try writing some of your own stuff and try and get into the conversation about it. I think you'll be surprised if you exercise this muscle over time that it can really help open up the doors in terms of building those networks and those relationships.
1: And for the listeners who are interested in community for founders and builders in fintech, I'm going to add the link to your cambrianhq.com where you can sign up for Rex's newsletter. All right, last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months?
0: Yeah, my my next big goal for the next 12 months is to identify the next big companies that are going to change financial services or specifically to identify the founders, the individuals who are going to build those companies. Because often when I'm meeting individuals, the, the company hasn't even formed. Yeah, in fact, my most recent investment is two individuals who I run a co-founder matching exercise. I had about 250 people participate in this starting in January. And two founders met each other through that. A lot of other folks did as well, but I happened to end up also backing this team. And so my goal is to leverage my networks to help identify those individuals who are building the next you know, great companies in in fintech and in financial services. And I do about a deal a month. So the next 12 months specifically, my goal is to Invest in 12 of the most interesting of those. <laughs> Fantastic.
1: Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Rex, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of A Academy, I hereby award you Alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: Maybe one quick thing you mentioned that I taught myself to code. I think moving, just moving to a new area is not necessarily enough. You should try and make yourself marketable too. And it's amazing what you can learn if you invest in certain things. So I spent about 2000 hours teaching myself to be a software engineer because when I looked at all the companies I wanted to work at, you could see who they're hiring for. And they'd have like one job in finance, Mm -hmm. one job in product. 20 jobs in engineering. I was like, hmm, bet you it's going to be a lot easier to get a job as an engineer. <laughs> so, so I did that. So I put in the work too. And so if you feel like you don't have the skill set to affect some of these changes, like put in the work. Beautiful.
1: And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well, Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst. Podcast host, Andrew Stott,
0: saying, I'll see you on the upside.